Good morning. Happy St. David's Day for tomorrow. Hope you're doing well. Nice to be with you live this morning. Now, when I planned this, I didn't know what the score was going to be, but uh, well done, Wales. Unlucky England. Now, we do like a bit of friendly banter, don't we, between Wales, England, and the other home nations during the Six Nations. Precious always reminds me that I am actually half English, even though I've been born in Wales, support Wales, grown up in Wales. My mum is, of course, English, so I can't take the teasing too far, which I'm sure Simon Brown will appreciate as well. But there was someone once who got caught out doing a bit of um, home nations banter, and it was Andy Murray. Back in 2006, when he first burst onto the scene as a young teenager and did really well, well at Wimbledon, and at the time, it was the World Cup, and England were in the World Cup at the same time, and there was like World Cup fever going on. And one day after practice or something at Wimbledon, uh, some journalists had arranged an interview with him and Tim Henman. And so after practice, Murray, Tim Henman, and this journalist were walking to uh, the place where the interview was going to take place. And Tim Henman tells a story, and he says that as they were walking along, they were winding up Andy Murray about how Scotland hadn't qualified for the World Cup. And they were saying, oh, Scot you know, Scotland aren't in it. In fact, when's the last time Scotland qualified? Scotland are rubbish at football. In fact, they're not very good at rugby either. And they were giving him a right old teasing. Until eventually, after all of this ribbing, Tim Henman said to Murray, so come on then, Andy, who are you going to support in the World Cup with Scotland on there? And Murray, after being teased for, you know, 10 minutes, he said, well, I don't really care. Anyone who plays England. And they all laughed about it, went off and had the interview. Well, the next day, you never guess what happened. Suddenly, headline news on the back pages. Andy Murray says, I support anyone but England. And there's all these articles come out how Andy Murray is supposedly anti-English. And for days and days and days, they whipped up these headlines against him. And they used his words in a friendly, having a joke together. They took them and they use them against him in quite an unfair way, I think. And we see that, don't we, from time to time in our culture and in our politics and media sometimes. But today, as we carry on with our Journey to the Cross series, we find Jesus in a similar situation where people are trying to use his words against him. And not just to sell some newspapers or try and embarrass him, but so that they can get him arrested and hopefully, in their eyes, killed. This is what it says in Luke 20, verse 20. It says this, Watching for the opportunity, the leader sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor, so he would arrest Jesus. And so today, we're going to have a look at, well, what was this like for Jesus? And how does he end up in this what I think is a bizarre situation where they're sending spies. One translation says they sent secret agents out to get him. It's like, I don't think James Bond was there. And, you know, for Jesus at this moment in time, his arrest and his actual crucifixion was just days away. But Jesus knew that it wasn't yet the moment. There were still some things that he wanted to do. So we're going to have a look at this in three parts. So first of all, what on earth is going on here? Why are the leaders trying to send spies to trap Jesus? Well, a few weeks ago with Sean, we saw that Jesus had just arrived into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The crowds were cheering and celebrating. Lots of people hoped and thought that he might be the nation's Messiah or Savior. But yet, people had different ideas of what that might mean. Some people thought Jesus was going to be a military ruler who would go and defeat the Romans, who were the occupying army. 
But of course, that's not what Jesus, Jesus has been teaching about loving your enemies and about forgiveness. And Jesus was teaching the kingdom of God, which was to be a rescuer for the whole world and was something much bigger than just trying to defeat the Romans. And when the leader saw the crowd celebrating, their reaction was a mixture of anger, jealousy, and fear. Because Jesus' message of the kingdom of God had been a challenge to their own uh, power and politics and the way that they were living. And all this came at Passover. And at Passover, there would be a real buzz around the city because people from all over Israel and all over the world, Jews and Gentiles who worship God, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And the city could grow in terms of population by five or six times. Some people estimate up to a million people would come to the city, which was a lot of people 2,000 years ago. Now, you know what it's like here in pre-COVID days and hopefully post-COVID, when you have like a large event and you have crowds of people, you know, like a big football game or if like a mass protest has been organized and, you know, the police and those, you know, in power and stuff, they will make sure that, you know, there's um, crowd control in place and they'll, might be, they'll, be on, they'll be on alert all day until those people have gone home because, you know, when big crowds are there, things can kick off and, you know, usually it's fine. Or, you know, sometimes in different parts of the world where it's like election week or election day and tensions can run high because things could kick off, uh, you know, it could be volatile. Well, Passover could be a little bit like that because you'd have all these people descending on Jerusalem and yet the Romans were occupying and the Romans didn't like big crowds. They didn't like things kicking off, so they would be on edge. And the Jewish leaders, they wouldn't want to upset the Romans and get them coming in, so they would be on edge about what's happening as well. So there'd be a bit of a buzz and a bit of an edge around the city. And then Jesus comes in and he just turns this up a notch with what he does next. He's like, you know, he's like a, a crowd control nightmare on this particular day. He arrives into Jerusalem, and one of the first things he does is he visits the temple. Now, in the temple, there was a big area around the outside called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is where people who'd been traveling from all over the world to worship God, this is where they could go to worship. So I want you to imagine, okay, imagine for a moment that you, you, know, you live hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, and uh, you have found out about uh, the God of Israel and the Jews, and you think, wow, he is amazing. You hear the stories, and you and your family, you decide that this is going to be the God that you worship, and you've put your faith in God. And maybe you're a poor family, and your farmers, uh, you know, in a poor community, and you think, do you know what would be fantastic? Why don't we save up, and one year, let's go to Jerusalem at Passover, and we can worship God, and, and we can, you know, um, and they've gone through all the, you know, ceremonies, and follow the laws, and, and they want to take part in this. And so you save up your money, and you want to bring a lamb, because you want to offer it to God, you want to eat it together, and so you save, save up, and save up, and after, you know, weeks and months and years, you save up enough to go. But you think, well, we've got to travel hundreds of miles um, by foot. You know, we can't bring this lamb with us. It's too far. And so you think, well, we'll sell the lamb here, and then we'll take the money with us, and we'll buy one at Jerusalem, and then we can uh, worship God that way. So you save up. You take your best lamb down to the market. You haggle for your best price. In fact, you think, well, let's sell two. Just in case you sell two, you collect your money, and you're a poor family. This is a big deal. It's like the equivalent of kids saving up to go to Disneyland. You travel all the way to Jerusalem, and then you get there, and you enter the temple, and you want to buy a lamb and all these things to offer it to God. So you get into the temple, and then suddenly, though, in the temple, you find there's all these uh, people selling lambs and merchants. 
But when you get there, you find the people selling the lambs are charging like five times, ten times the price that a lamb would normally be. And you've saved up and you brought this money, and you find that actually you may not have enough to buy it. And then you find you can't just use your money to buy it, but you've got to go and exchange your money for special temple currency. So you go over and you go to get the temple currency, and there's money changes in the temple who will change it for you. But you don't know what the exchange rates are. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to buy something or get someone's service and there's no prices and you know you're just at their mercy because they could just charge you whatever they like? And so the money changes, they're just ripping people off, they're charging whatever they like for people who don't know. And you've traveled all this way and come all this way and then suddenly you find that you've been completely ripped off and you haven't got the money and you can't join in or you can't do it or you're going to have to go and sell your cloak and your wagon just to join in. How disappointing would that be? And that's what was happening in the temple with moneylenders and merchants, and they were ripping off the poor, they were ripping off people who traveled hundreds of miles, and it was terrible. And all of this was under the authority of the religious leaders. Ultimately, they were in charge. And Jesus sees all this, and he is not happy with it. And he goes into the temple, and in uh, verse 45, it says this, Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people, selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And they were putting these barriers up in place that were stopping the poor from worshiping, which is the the last thing that God would want. And so in doing this, in Jesus clearing the temple, he brings himself into direct confrontation with the religious leaders, and he disrupts a major income stream. And as he's there casting them out, he repeats the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and hundreds of years before, in a very dark time in Israel's history, he had warned the people that they were doing, you know, going away from God and exploiting the poor, and there was a lot of injustice going on. And he said, if you carry on like this, you're gonna, we're going to go into exile. And it ended up happening, and it was like a, a dark time in Israel's history. And now Jesus is here accusing the religious leaders of behaving in the same way as the people back then in a dark time. And so Jesus here, he comes right up against the religious leaders. And it's almost as if all of Jesus's little skirmishes with the religious leaders that you see right throughout his life, it's like they come to a head in this moment in Jerusalem. Because Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of God, hadn't he? Which is all about, you know, injustice and love for the poor and care for our neighbor and forgiving our enemies and serving God, not looking for power and money and wealth, but putting others first. And this was a challenge to the leaders Because on the outside, it looked like they were being all religious, but when you scratch the surface, you could see it was often about wealth, power, position, politics, and they were ignoring the needs of the poor and the broken and of justice. And so here, Jesus, he calls them to make a choice. Are you going to continue on the path that you're on, or are you going to accept me and accept my message and accept this vision of the kingdom of God? And for the religious leaders, for them, it's like they can't ignore Jesus any longer. Whilst he was in Galilee and little towns and traveling around, he might have been a pain to them. They might have got frustrated, but it was almost, you know, it was manageable. But now, Jesus has brought it to their doorstep. It's in Jerusalem. It's at Passover. The people are watching. The Romans are watching. It's in the temple. It's right on their doorstep, and they cannot ignore it any longer. They have to make a choice. It's decision time for them. And in verse 47, we see their reaction. This is what it says. 
After this, Jesus taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests, the religious, teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all the people hung on his every word. And now for them, it was like, we have no choice. We're not believing Jesus. We are going to kill him. That's the only way we're getting rid of this nuisance and this challenge to us. And so now we get to the stage where they're trying to find a way to trap Jesus. They try, need to get a way to get him arrested and get him killed. And so the first thing that they try and do is they try and get Jesus to say something that would be against their laws that they can get him killed for. And one of those ways, they would accuse him of blasphemy. If Jesus said that he was the son of God, they, wanted, they didn't believe that, so they would accuse him of blasphemy and arrest him. And so now they're trying to get Jesus to say that publicly so they got witnesses and they can, they can get him. So this is what it says. This is Luke chapter 20. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people, sorry, one day as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, By what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the right to clear the temple? Who gives you the right to teach there? Now, it's an easy question. We know who gives Jesus the right. Jesus himself, he's the son of God. His authority comes from heaven. We know, it's an easy one. But the religious leaders, they, they're not asking genuinely. They, they want Jesus to say that, and then they're going to say, oh, you know, you're saying this, we're going to arrest you, they're going to get rid of him. So Jesus, he's got to negotiate this. And what he does, he does it in two steps. And the first thing is, he asks them a question back, and this exposes their intentions. Jesus said to them this, let me ask you a question first. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Then the, the leaders, they talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask, why didn't we believe John? But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they're convinced John was a prophet. So they finally replied, they didn't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And so Jesus exposes their motives because John the Baptist had had an amazing ministry before Jesus and loads of people had turned back to God through him. And all the people knew and recognized that he was a prophet. But his message was a challenge to the religious leaders, so they didn't listen to him. And so Jesus exposes their motives. They just want the answer. They, you know, they don't want the real answer. They just want what they're looking for. So if they didn't believe John, well, they're not going to believe Jesus. So why should I answer this question? So that's the first way he like sidesteps it. But then Jesus, we know Jesus, he never like ducked out of a challenge or bring in the truth or these kind of confrontations. And we see that what Jesus does next is he does actually answer their question. And he tells them who he is and what he's doing and where his authority comes from. But he tells them using a parable. And Jesus would often use parables this way. And he would, when Jesus would tell parables to those who had open hearts and open minds, it would reveal to them who Jesus was and where he had come from and what he had done. But for those people who were just trying to trap him in his words, it would like conceal these truths and communicate them in a way that then they couldn't get to him. So let's have a look at it together. It says this, Jesus told them this. Now, Jesus turned to the people again and told them a story. A man planted a vineyard leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, 
he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant. Here we go. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. I know. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they'll respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. And so they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. And then Jesus asked the people, what do you think the vineyard owner will do? He says, I'll tell you. He'll come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should happen, his listeners protested. Now, those hearing it are horrified at the thought. And this is a really vivid story, isn't it? And when you're reading it, you're thinking, don't send the sun. That's a terrible idea. What are you doing? You're so vivid and really grabs you. When Jesus was telling this story, he was also retelling a prophecy that Isaiah had given. And Isaiah had given a prophecy about how um, God was like a vineyard owner who'd made the perfect vineyard, given it the perfect land, built a watchtower, built a wall, and it was like everything a vineyard would need, but the vineyard produced bad fruit. And it was like the vineyard was Israel, that you know, God had made a covenant, he put them in the promised land, he was for them, he was with them, he had blessed them, and yet the people turned away from him. And so Jesus is telling this story, and he's like retelling this prophecy. And so the people would be making the connections about what Jesus was saying and how it was kind of comparing what was happening now with what was happening then. And I, you know, another bad time in Israel's past. And it was like Jesus was saying, again, God is the vineyard owner, and the vineyard is the nation. And the tenant farmers, those who he's put in charge, are the leaders of the nation. And they'd, turn, they'd been turning away from God, and God sent messenger after messenger after messenger, which was the prophets, until finally God sent his own son, Jesus, with the message of the kingdom. Surely they would respect the owner's own son. But what do the tenant farmers do? They spot him, they reject him, and they kill him. And at this point in the stories, when the crowd go, surely this wouldn't happen. God forbid that such a thing would happen. And when they're reacting, they're thinking, because they would make the connections to the previous prophecy, they're thinking, no, 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 we're not like the people back then. We would never do something like that. That's not us. That's not who we are. God forbid that such a thing would happen. And then Jesus connects the parable to himself to say, this is exactly what's happening, and this is what you're about to do. Jesus looked at them and he said, then tell me, what does this scripture mean? And he quotes from the Old Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. And here Jesus is saying through this parable that I am the son, and you're about to reject and kill me. But what you're rejecting will become the foundation of all that God is doing in the world. His rescue, his coming kingdom, his church. And Jesus uses the image of a building and says that he is the cornerstone, which is the foundation stone of a building. It'd be the one that all the others would be aligned to and built on. And that's where we get our name from a church, Cornerstone Church, because Jesus is our cornerstone and we want to be a church built on him. And I love it here that what Jesus says comes true. That yes, he was rejected by the leaders, you know, just a few days later and he was killed. 
for he rose to life again. And even though he's rejected, he became the cornerstone. He has rescued the world through his death and his resurrection. He invites us all to build our lives from on him, to receive the gift of eternal life, and to do life with him together. He is the cornerstone and the savior of the world. But at this moment, when the religious leaders hear this, they are furious. It says this, the teachers of religious law and the leading priests, they wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. And so Jesus, I love it, he does answer their question. He tells them straight up, this is who I am, this is where I've come from, this is where I'm doing, you've got to make a choice. But because he does it in a parable, they want to arrest him, but they can't. Their hands are tied because he hasn't just said it in the words that they're looking for. I love it, I love it how he does it. He conceals it in a parable, they can't catch him publicly. And now they just go, they're going absolutely crazy. They cannot wait to try and get their hands on Jesus. And it's after this, you see, that they don't go to him himself, but they start sending these spies to try and trap him. And so two things for us to take away from this story today. The first one is, we see how things are really hotting up for Jesus, and the tensions are rising. And as you read on, you see now these spies start to try and trap him. And I want you to encourage you to this week to read the next part of the story for yourselves. See how Jesus handles these next questions that come his way as the tensions increase and lead up to his arrest. So let's have a read. And also, if you're interested in more of like the historical detail and the politics of what was happening, I've put some links in the description. You can click on those. There's some videos and podcasts. You can find out a bit more of that kind of detail. And then the second thing, which is really important for us, is even though Jesus was facing all this hostility where they're trying to trap him, it says that he continued to go back to the temple every single day. In Luke 21, it says, Every day Jesus went to the temple to teach, and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. And Matthew adds, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. I think it's amazing how Jesus he went back like into the lion's den every single day. I don't know if you've ever been like in a, a tough situation at work or a place where and you, you know have to go back and you dread going back. But Jesus, he chose to go back into that day after day after day because Jesus cares about people. And there were people there that were hanging on his every word. And there were people there that needed healing. And Jesus went back each day for them. And that's the same of how Jesus is towards us. That's how Jesus cares about you. He loves you. And he reaches out to you day after day after day to speak into your life, to strengthen you, to comfort you, to empower you for the things that we face. He is here for you every single day. Jesus is the same today. So let's be encouraged to continue to build our lives on Jesus and to continue to trust in him. Jesus says that he is the cornerstone. Let's build our lives on him. This is how the Bible describes Jesus as the cornerstone. In Isaiah, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. And that's true for us. Let's build our lives on Jesus. And before we finish today as well, you know, Jesus went back into the temple every day, not just to teach, but to heal the sick. 
And over the last few weeks, we've been um, seeing a lot of people healed over Zoom and online as we've been praying for people. There was a lady uh, called Carolyn who had an allergy intolerance, was uh, lactose intolerance, so severe that she said that if she had even a little drop of milk or anything with lactose in, inadvertently, that her brain would swell and she would be in pain with headaches for four days, excruciating pain, and she'd end up in bed. And we prayed for her, and uh, afterwards, she actually tried a little bit of milk, an inch of milk, and she said she, had, she didn't have any adverse effects, just a tiny little headache. And after that, we, she had some more prayer, and since then, she's reported back to us a few weeks later. She said, I've eaten bounties, I've eaten chocolate bars, I, I ate a trifle, and I've had no problems at all since, which is amazing. We saw a guy with tinnitus and ringing in his ears, and after we prayed for him a few times, all the ringing had completely gone, and he could hear clearly. And this was over Zoom. So I want to encourage you today, if you're watching today, and you need healing in your body, that Jesus heals today. And before I finish, I'd love to pray for you if you want to pray along. So if you'd like to join in, why don't you just put a hand on your body where you need healing, and just say this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, please heal me now. And now I'll pray for you. Jesus, I thank you that you went back into that temple every day to bring healing to people's bodies. I thank you that you healed today and for the healing that we've seen. And right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command pain in bodies to go. I command sickness to go in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, would you meet people right now as they watch this with your healing power? And in the name of Jesus, I command pain to go, sickness to go, bodies be restored in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me just pray for everyone. Lord God, I pray, would you bless each person watching this morning? Meet them with your love. Strengthen them through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray you'd be with us this week just as you were with those people in the temple each day. Amen.